Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the Dutch writer Dan Herman van Vos. Dan is an award-winning literary novelist who's now turned his hand to non-fiction with a new book called The Anxiety Project. In it, he writes with brutal honesty and massive self-awareness about his anxiety condition, which has plagued him all his life. Not only does he explore his personal background, his genetic makeup, and the effects of his conditions on his love life and friendships, but he also investigates the history of anxiety treatment and how the economic and social landscape in the modern Western world might be contributing to an anxiety epidemic. He's a great bloke who also happens to be an avid Ajax fan, something I spent a huge amount of time talking to him before we recorded this episode. Anyway, that's by the by. This is a really interesting chat, I think, with a very clever bloke. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Dan, welcome to The Reset. Thank you. This book is a remarkable achievement. Um, Was it chiefly a cathartic process for you? Was that why you first embarked upon it? Um, well, I was hoping for that because the beginning of the book, well, is very, the beginning of this whole journey, I see it as, as a journey, the book, um, was very autobiographical. My then girlfriend sort of forcing me to finally look the monster in, in the eye and, and find out what what these fears were, the, this anxiety was that was holding me in its grip and so also her and us in its grip. Uh, so I, I was hoping for that, but it wasn't my primary goal. Uh, I don't think... Uh, I am a fiction writer in... Uh, Generally, I'm a fiction writer, so I don't see a a book or any book project as being therapeutical, in essence. It shouldn't be that. You have therapy for that. Uh, But every book you write is also therapeutical. So it wasn't a goal. I was hoping for it. My goal was just to find out what was 
plaguing what had been plaguing me for all these years and we don't i mean a, a lot has been written written about anxiety from neurologists psychologists uh, a few historians uh, but they all present such a fragmented way of looking at fear and anxiety i that didn't help me so i wanted a book that was well you could say an easy read or or at least a very personal read a personal book would that also uh encompasses all all those fields of expertise so mm -hmm. i wanted a, a, a book that was all of the above but you didn't you don't it doesn't read as being heavy so i wanted to write something that didn't exist the book i i wanted to read uh but it was not there and of course i didn't really know where i would wind up because it was such a it's such a broad field anxiety fear mm. where do you begin so it was it was very much uh, a journey into into the unknown of myself because i didn't want to face all these all these fears and also in all these fields of expertise i didn't know that that well let's go back to the the sort of instant at least in the book serves as a catalyst to your journey of discovery which is like you say a conversation with your then girlfriend this was something that felt very i could re relatable to me and i'm sure lots of other people who read it that feeling that you've you almost feel like you've lost all control over your own thoughts and you can mm -hmm. see that it's starting to affect the person who you love and who loves you and yeah. and 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 therefore these thoughts these fears many of which might have been imaginary start to actually create a genuine threat which is a threat to your relationship and and yeah. it's as if your girlfriend's saying to you i just can't take this anymore and yeah, I found sure. that chilling because I had, a, you know, when I have been in, in the depths of my mental health problems, there was a moment where I remember the first time offloading to my girlfriend, to my wife, really offloading to her because I didn't know what else I could do. I couldn't keep in any longer. And, and she'd been very up, understanding up until the point. And then one day she just started to weep. And, I, I, you know, you use a beautiful phrase in the book, which is slow tears. Um and I just thought to myself, oh, no, this could actually jeopardize my mm -hmm. relationship. Um, how painful was that? And and had it had the same thing happened in previous relationships? Is this was your anxiety always getting in the way of? of things yeah. Like it, it's a, it, it was heartbreaking uh, because. When you're struggling with these kind of deep anxiety anxieties which which are so, so profound and so constant that they put you in a state of depression and you can't really get out uh you're in a state of survival so you're constant each day you're surviving just to get through the day but you being pre preoccupied with surviving is actually is perceived by the other the significant significant other as a process of withdrawal. Your surviving is 
in a way, not committing to her and the relationship. So, so it, it, it's, it's very painful to hear because you're thinking, I was thinking, I'm doing everything I can just to keep it all together. And exactly that process was being too much for, for her. And I understood it. I, I knew it, that was what was going on. Uh, I hadn't known that for a few months. Uh, I was hoping that she would not say say those words or cry those tears because I knew it would, I could sort of shelve it or say that it wasn't, deny it as long as she didn't really, she hadn't really said it. But there they were, those words, and I knew she was right. And uh, yeah, in previous relationships, it had been a problem as well. This moment always arose sooner or later. As soon as uh, a woman I, I fall for or a woman I love gets to know me, I, so, I sort of dread or dreaded things have changed a bit but dreaded the day that she would find out mm. other side of me or the real me as i thought back then mm. uh, so yeah in every relationship this conversation arose sooner or later um but this time my and I, my, my answer was always, okay, yeah, I'll try to fix it. And then I did some therapy or took some antidepressants. Uh, and as soon as I sort of got out of that well or that pit, I could say to myself, well, it's done now. I'm better now. But in my heart, I knew that I didn't, I hadn't resolved anything. So this time when this girlfriend uh, was crying and said those words. This was a different kind of relationship. We were living together. We were together for five years by then. So this was the moment for me to take the other way and actually face whatever it was there was, uh, uh, I had to face. And I did that by the only means I know, which is, uh, being honest, taking notes, and writing. Yeah. So you 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 obviously decided that you needed to that a point had come where you could no longer just sort of practice maintenance of no, it this wasn't issue. Terrible. You you had to deep dive into it and get down yeah. to to the roots of it, which is interesting because some people do think, well, there's nothing to understand. This is a condition. Like some people would say. You know, like I, I've been to my GP, my doctor before, and when I in the early days of me confronting my problems, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, it's just like you don't catch a cold or get a sore throat and need to know exactly how the viral infection came about. You just need to know how you can get better and live with it." Right? I don't necessarily agree with that, uh, but some people just think you don't need to understand it. You just need to learn how to live with it. But you, you decided that you had to truly deeply understand it on on the detailed level in order to then 
start to unpick it. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you could say um, you could decide that it's not about understanding your anxiety mm. and sort of that's more of a Buddhist Taoist approach. But then it has to be a choice. It has to be a position you come to. Mm. It wasn't a pos position of, of mine. I just didn't have any idea. So if at the end of this whole process of getting to know what anxiety and fear is, I would then, that would result in, in my taking the position, me taking the position, uh, well, all this isn't important. I'll, I'll just take it day by day day by day and not think about it, that would be justifiable. That's fine. But that was not where I was. And also, I think this analogy of, of the doctor is, is, is kind of preposterous because the thing about fear is, and do you mind, uh, what kind of word do you like me to, to use? Fear or anxiety? What, what? Either's fine. Either's fine with me. Does they mean... right to you. Do they mean the same thing to you? I think so, yeah. Okay, then I'll just say uh, anxiety. Um, anxiety has always been closely connected to your imagination and your mm. thoughts. So you can't just say it's a physical phenomenon, like, say, a cold. Cold isn't connected with... Uh, with your fantasies and your uh, expectations of the future and your uh, thoughts about what will happen to you if those expectations aren't met, there's no psyche involved with a cold. So I think that's a very limiting, limiting view that does not really help you that much. Uh, if, it, if it helps you to not sort of take the deep dive and just do it day by day, that's fine. But for me, that was exactly what was holding me back because I always had this cycle of a very anxious period and then uh, getting out of that and forgetting about it. That's also a thing people, people who are uh, inclined to, to have depressions do. They have a very strange relationship with their memory. They sort of forget all their depressed periods as soon as they're over. That's a survival mechanism. Because if you re remember every, every depression, you will probably lack the courage to go on. So as soon as you're out, you sort of shove that aside and forget all about it. So that was my my uh, strategy as well. As soon as I was out, I forgot all about it. But that made it a, a cyclical thing. And yeah. that whole cycle was slowly wrecking my my life, really. So I had to take the other route. Yeah, I can relate to that myself. And, I, and it's something that I've discussed with a lot of other male friends and people who've come on this pod. In fact, that, that cycle whereby you would you feel like you've addressed it you've got better and yeah and then you kind of think well that's that fixed the, i don't yeah. have to think about that let's not dwell on that yeah yeah so. yeah and it and it always always comes back i remember my first ever therapist when i stopped going to see him after like seeing him for like maybe a three-month period and i i just stopped booking him and he started leaving messages for me 
and I ignored them. And at the time I told myself I wasn't in a good place at all. And I told myself that he was trying to hustle me. But I remember specifically him saying to me, Sam, you have to understand. I know you might be thinking that you're through this now, but if you don't complete what we've started, it will come back. It will definitely come back. And I remember scoffing like when I was listening to his voicemail thinking he just wants me to carry on paying him money. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that was many years ago and I've been in long-term therapy since then, but I often think about his words and think he was mm-hmm. absolutely right, but I just wasn't, I couldn't see it at that time in my life. Um, Never say that, tell him that afterwards, like later. Yeah, I haven't been in touch with him for years and years because he did subsequently, years later when I got more committed to therapy and recovery and whatnot, after terrible times that he had warned me about, um i got a new therapist and i've been with her for eight years but maybe i should look him up one of these days and tell him that he played it he played a part in me kind of slowly getting better yeah yeah but um, you do recognize this cycle i do yeah when you uh, i mean you phrase it really well and i recognize it and i don't like to talk a lot about meds uh on on this podcast because obviously i'm not an expert but you see it in the way in which people often will go to a doctor, get prescribed antidepressants, do yeah. it for a period, feel better, come off the antidepressants. And of course, as, as most of us have experienced, if you've taken those drugs, getting on them is actually often more difficult than getting off them. You know, the, the period for a lot of us, when you when you first start taking them, can be very difficult before they start to take effect. And, uh, and, and you know, and I'm I've been through it myself and I know other people over there. You think you're better, you come off the medication, you bounce back again, maybe a few months later or a year later, or a couple of years later, and you have to go through the whole thing of going back on. And that's a cycle in itself that can be very, yeah. very, I mean, it puts you through a lot, that cycle, you know, yeah, in, it does. Quite, in quite a real and practical way. Um, uh, I want to just for the, for the listeners benefit for you to tell us about, the, you know, the means by which um, I believe it was a, a research study in or laboratory in Amsterdam tested your hair and concluded that you may be, and I know you probably say this with your tongue in cheek, you may be the world's most anxious man. Can you explain to us how you discovered yeah. that? Yeah, well, the way they, uh, cortisol is is considered to be the, the anxiety of, hormone or the stress hormone it's one of those hormones you produce when you are in uh, fight fight or freeze mode so uh, someone who's very anxious has very high levels of cortisol when you have very high levels of cortisol you must be anxious that's the connection the way they uh, they find out how much cortisol you have in your blood is by examining your your hair every centimeter of your hair is a month in 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 time in length so you can send a few hairs to the laboratory and then you can see how your cortisol has developed in those months uh People don't really do that very often. Uh, but I was very curious because I had this sense that I was dealing with anxiety and fear all the time, but I didn't have any, you know, proof. 
So I I sent him I sent them to the lab uh, twice actually, and well the first time uh, I I think you you I don't have the book here with me. You can look it up. What the yeah. exact? I I think I think the context was the the average um, amount of cortisol in in a head for someone from your part of the world would have been. I think it was like I thought two two percent. Yeah, one, was it? I think it one point seven. Yeah, yeah, two point seven picograms of cortisol yeah. per milligram of hair. Um, and in people who are very who suffer from very long term mental health problems, it can be as high as fifteen picograms. Uh, but for you, in the first month, it was seventy four. Then it was eighty seven. And then eventually your reading was as high as two hundred. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it was it it was absolutely ridiculous. And so the doctor didn't didn't really believe the results, but we tested it three times. Uh and each time she she sent a few hairs of her own to the lab and they came out normal. So there was no way that could have gone wrong, really. But there was also no way to actually believe the results uh, because it was so absurdly off the charts that there was no model for this. So she couldn't accept it, uh, but also couldn't offer an alternative theory. She, she uh, well, she came up with this theory that I might have some sort of tumor that produces cortisol, but I knew that was, I mean, I don't have that. Uh, I don't have any symptoms except that. So it was, I actually felt quite vindicated. I, yeah, I mean, that was what I was going to say. Did you feel, when they told you that you were effectively a hundred times more anxious than the average person, did you I was actually quite let, proud? Yeah, and did you think, yeah, that sounds about right? Well, I, I was very proud of myself that I didn't mess up my life yes. a hundred times worse than other people do. Yeah. I mean, I do mess it up slightly more than the average person, maybe, but not that much. No, I was actually quite proud that I could that I was functioning with that. So I, I, well, it was such a ridiculous number that I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really know how to, to respond, uh, but I, I believed it, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I always had the feeling that my uh, perception of reality was fundamentally different than that of those around me. So it's, and cortisol does that, so I felt, yeah, I felt, I felt this, this could be right. And also, it was a very bad period. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So I don't think that the results today would be as bad as then. So, uh, yeah. No, I might be. Can we, can we get just a, a sense of, you know, what what your anxiety looked like? You know, you, you describe it as being, you know, completely incessant. Um, what Was there any particular theme to your worries and fears? Or was it anything and everything when you go through one of these phases? It has to be with, it has to do with my uh, mental resilience. If I'm, I'm in a healthy period, I, I, I do sleep enough. Uh, there's not that much stress. I'm, I'm fine. I'm not that anxious, but if the, the, the burden or the load becomes more than I can handle and I don't sleep when, when there's always this tipping point. And if I cross that tipping point, everything becomes, can become frightening. Um, so there, there aren't, I mean, the basic fear, I guess would be that I'm not, uh, strong enough for this life. I'm right. not up to this. Yeah. Uh, so when a few things go wrong, I would crumble and I wouldn't have the strength to build myself up again. Mm. So that's, on the one hand, very daunting. On the other hand, it's terribly vague. And, and that makes... And that vagueness is 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 can be quite problematic because it allows that fear to shape shift, so it can turn into, it can take the form of, if that book doesn't really work, mm. your life is over. Yeah, it can, it can shape shift into a different anxiety, if. Uh, if your wife or your girlfriend leaves you, there would be there will be nothing left, and you are not up to it. Mm. So, because of that vagueness, it's it's morphs into all these kinds of uh, specific fears. Well, fears that feel very specific, but actually don't have anything to do with the circumstances. And then, of course, my reaction always has been the wrong one namely trying to 
think myself, think a way out of it. Yeah. Uh, so my my response to anxiety has always been obsession. Yeah. And then you're you're spiraling. Yeah. That's so, that's really familiar to me as well. Like in my worst times, it was always because I would, you know, like when a car's skidding, they say you should yeah. steer into it. But yeah, but and if you try to steer out of the skid, the car will spin, won't it? And yeah. and that that's how I always thought of my anxiety is I'd think, oh, it's fine. I can lie when if I was lying awake at night, I'd start working out, trying to un unlock it all like a puzzle, thinking that yeah. I could eventually arrive at a point where I'd yeah, fixed it. But of course, that just circulates the worrying thoughts more and more around your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, it 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 is exhausting and it it and that's a very interesting phenomenon. It's it makes you smaller. Each each obsessive thought you have makes you smaller because it's a way of signaling signaling to yourself. I need this thought. I need this scenario. Without this, I will crumble. Without, uh, if A doesn't work, there will be B. But what, what you're telling yourself is, I need B. So with every obsess obsessive thought, you sort of give away autonomy, sovereignty to these thoughts that will never materialize. So yeah. you're putting yourself in, in small pieces with every obsessive thought you have. So what you think that's that's what what's keeping me safe, but that's on the contrary is what making you it's it's ripping you apart. And in the end you think I need these thoughts, so you become addicted to it, and then the thoughts become the problem. So yeah, you're you're skidding. Yeah. Um, so you go on this journey to look at the big questions surrounding the roots of not just your anxiety, but the world's anxiety, because as you observe in the book, you know, this is a, a growing problem across the globe. Um, I'm gonna go through some of the areas that you investigate. Um, chiefly, where is it coming from? You look at, you know, what genes have to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know how much of this is hardwired into us. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, when it comes to to the ancient nature nurture debate, I always considered myself to be a nurture type of person. Mm. Uh, but I have to say, when looking at the evidence and looking at the uh, the studies and the, the the academic literature, I would it does turn out that nature plays a great plays a big part uh when you look at studies that have have been done with uh twins or uh adoptions those you you can sort of see whether they whether uh twins that have been se separated at birth develop similar proneness to anxiety mm. and they do generally so there is this uh genetic component to susceptibility to anxiety mm. it doesn't have to to turn out that way there 
life events make a di big difference too. But whether you're prone or susceptible to anxiety is indeed hardwired. It, it, same thing with my family. It turns out I didn't know that when I started out uh, writing the book. Uh, but my my mother had had been very anxious, same fears that, as I had. Uh, her mother had them, so my grandmother, and even her father had them. So we also in my family there's there's this uh, heritage. Uh, we sort of pass pass each other. Uh, yeah, there's this big genetic genetic component. There's no 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 uh, no two ways about that. A different thing. I mean, trauma is a different thing. Someone who's not genetically susceptible to anxiety can suffer such trauma that a whole new cycle begins. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, and I was surprised by that because I'm I was very ready to blame it all on nurture, but. Did it yeah. did it help you personally at all to to come to understand that? Yeah, it did. It did because I always felt like an outlier, like a freak in the family. Mm. Uh, so it 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 did sort of secure a place for me in the family narrative, and it made me slightly milder towards myself. Uh, not blaming me myself, uh, not blaming myself the way I did before. And it raised all sorts of new interesting questions about about the labels we we attach to to these symptoms, these complaints, because mm -hmm. well, in my in in our age, it's the anxiety disorder, but my mother had this weird she was living in freudian time so she had this weird freudian freudian label attached to herself then my grandmother it was called depression and then my her father it was called melancholy so we you have all these the same exactly the same symptoms like uh, uh basically being able to to function at a higher level but as soon as you're overwhelmed, you sort of collapse and everything becomes a source of anxiety. They all had that, but it was the diagnosis each time was entirely different. So what does that tell, tell you about the status of today's label? I hadn't really thought about that before, but it of course it makes it fundament fundamentally relative and that was a very interesting yeah. start. What's point. interesting, though, is that if you look back at those other sort of um, eras, right, in which, uh, of, or the different ways in which it was anal analysed through the generations, you're right, it always changed. Our perception of it, our analysis, our description of it changed, but the symptoms were basically the same. So, yeah, it may well evolve once more. It probably will. But we are now discussing and examining this more as a society than ever before aren't we is that is that right to say i mean i feel as if if you go back to 
your grandfather's era in which it might have been called melancholy or your great grandfather's era, that it was like not something that was widely discussed across society. Well, as I've, I've found every age has been called the age of anxiety. Ah. So we have, have always been fearful that something was happening to our society. Like the whole start of modernism with trains uh, uh, coming into to, to the countryside, into the cities and the big urbanization movements uh, around the 1900s, people were terrified that this would be the end of our end of our mental uh, or normalcy, basically. Mm -hmm. So even that way of thinking and being afraid of that is not new. That's one part of the answer. And the other part is that um, in the few meta studies that have been tried to find out whether we have become more anxious, and those are very complicated studies because how do you measure that? Uh, it does seem to point to to that uh, people who were growing up in the 1980s have elevated levels of anxiety yeah um and and with the with the generation that generation that grow up with their cell phone uh there's a new spike so we don't know yet how that evolves but it probably won't be good and and um yeah there's that and there is also what people call a lot of people call it the end, end stage capitalism. Um, what role did you did you conclude is that is the economic climate and political climate we live in today having an effect on anxiety? Uh, well, I th I think it does. I think it does because uh, we're from the generation that growing up we were we learned that everything was malleable. We could become the person we wanted to be. Everything was possible. So we, we, we learned that it was okay or even, even desirable to have great expectations. Mm. But then the reality was, of course, that the whole system is is rigged those expectations we have can't be met so we have we're from the generation and the generations after us have different different kind of prob problems but the same in that sense that we know that the future is getting worse smaller uh ecologically very turbulent so we we're we are the first generations that see that the future will not nearly be as bright as our present so that's a whole new sensibility we're just learning to accept these days so that that does make make a great difference and also capitalism has has a well 
terrible consequence, uh, consequences for the way we look after each other, that uh, for the way that we used to come together in times of, of adversity and now we're all atomized, we're separated. There's no sense of solidarity anymore. I mean, that's the direct result of, of capitalism. I mean, uh, Thatcher even said that society wasn't even a thing. Mm. So uh, capitalism has paid, I think, has played a, a very important role in accelerating these, these, uh, this anxious state of mind so many of us are uh, having right now. How do you feel about that? I, I agree. It's a theme that comes up, you know, from time to time on this podcast. And I think that, you know, people, of course, have been living under this economic system for over a century at least. Um, but I feel that the stage it's at now, like you say, that the curtain has been drawn back a bit and like it's been easier. It becomes easier with each passing day for us to see some of the myths and, um, I suppose our parents, as long as they were, you know, getting on in their careers and being able to afford to buy a house and so on and so forth and raising kids who were more, um, who who had a better life than they had before them, then mm-hmm. I guess that's a narrative that is, you know, yeah, working. It makes you think, oh, this is all working. Progress. Yeah. But all, all of those things are now in reverse quite vividly. <laughs> and so it's very hard to wake up feeling optimistic. You know, whether you're someone who is genetically um, predisposed to anxiety or not, optimism, yeah. especially if you're a young person, is a hard, hard thing to come by these days. Very um, much. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I suppose lastly, I want to ask you, you know, you're you're a novelist, really. This, this is your first nonfiction work. So, you know, you are a creative person. Did you discover that anxiety your anxiety had, had been a, had played a positive role in your creativity to any extent. Is there anything to be grateful for by having an anxious mind? There is, there is. I'm, I'm, of course, I can't prove this academically, not, not uh, in a, in a real sense, but uh, I have found also in literature that the anxious mind is anxiety is always very is always connected to sensitivity, uh, and that can also mean you're very sensitive about the wonderful parts of life. Uh, when you're very anxious, you have these moments that you feel deeply connected to other pe- other human beings, mm. a sense of belonging. When the anxiety dims somewhat, uh, fades some, somewhat. Uh, you are probably more in tune with feeling grateful when you're feeling good. Uh, anxiety is all, also connected to empathy. When you're when you're anxious, you're you're very attuned to how other people are. Th- are feeling when you see someone else struggling, you probably will notice that. So anxiety in a way allows you to 
become a better friend or uh, a better companion. Uh, and now I'm talking, of course, about periods in which the, the, the during which the anxiety or the fear is manageable, mm. where you're doing okay. When you're in survival mode, you can't really be bothered with other people because there's not enough space for you to do so. But generally, I would say empathy and anxiety are linked as well. And as I said before, earlier in our conversation, there's also a, a correlation between anxiety and imagination. And that can work, work against you when you have, when you're in an anxious state of mind, you tend to imagine all these negative outcomes and catastrophic scenarios. So it can work against you, but that same imagination can produce wonderful thoughts as well and uh, creative thoughts that a less agile mind wouldn't wouldn't be able to conjure up, I would say. So there are, it's a mistake to see anxiety as a sort of separate part from the rest of you. It's not like a limb, it's not like an organ you can rip out. It's it's woven into your being. So you you can't really separate it from who you are. So you the other side of the coin can be quite beautiful. Everything that is beautiful or worthwhile or everything I live for. I live for because of the connection I'm allowed to feel with it by anxiety, I would say. That's amazing. It's an amazing thought. Um, and it's, uh, as is evident throughout your book, it's a fascinating and wide ranging and, and forensic way of looking at anxiety and the role it plays in our world and our lives. And um, for that reason, I'd encourage anyone listening Who's, who recognises any of these things we've been discussing today to pick up a copy of The Anxiety Project, A Journey to the Centre of Our Deepest Fears. Dan, it's been a, a pleasure and, a, and an education speaking with you. I'm very I'm grateful for your time. And, thank you. Um, and, and the book is, is wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you go. Dan Herman Van Voss, author of brilliant new book, The Anxiety Project. It's intelligent but readable and I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening as always, gang. Please remember to subscribe to The Reset at sounddelaney.substack.com for bonus pods, live events, newsletters and participation in our little community talking about mental health without all the bollocks. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.